Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight. I'm Tian Wei. China and Norway celebrate their 70th anniversary of diplomatic relations this year. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Norway visited China this month, the very first from Europe for the year. Norway is among the first and now one of the biggest destinations of Chinese electronic vehicles produced for the global market. Cultural and people-to-people exchanges with shared scientific research have also deepened ties. On these and more, I had the honor of having an in-depth conversation with the Minister of Foreign Affairs from Norway, Espen Bart Eide, during his visit in Beijing. Norway has been working very hard on building consensus on some of the challenges we're facing globally, for example, climate change, biodiversity, and even some of the global hot issues, hotspot issues. So, Mr. Minister, how do you see the prospect of working with China on these issues? First, I would have liked to say that uh, cooperation with China on these issues is very good and progressing very constructively that uh, you, we cannot really solve these global issues without China because China is 1.4 billion people. It's the second largest economy. It is uh, present all over the world. So in every issue that matters, China has a role and we would be, and we are very happy to work with China on these issues. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned climate and biodiversity. And I would like to start by saying that uh, I had uh, an excellent uh, cooperation with the Minister Wang, the, your uh, environment minister, when he was president of the conference that gave us the nature agreement, uh, the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. He was the president. A very able president, but then he selected a small group of ministers to work with him to help deliver a final result. And I was one of these ministers selected, and that was a really good experience. And I, I think the Chinese people should be proud of what you achieved. And this also fits very well with something which is high on uh, President Xi's agenda, which is that. Uh, China shall continue to grow, but now there is also a focus on the quality of growth, not only on the quantity of growth, Mm -hmm. that uh, you are not only taking people out of poverty, but you also want to make sure that you have uh, blue sky, clean lakes, clean rivers, uh, take care of biodiversity. And and I've noticed that after a successful completion of the Kunming Montreal Global Diversity Framework, China's government has also set up to implement these promises. Uh, globally, and that's one area. Another one is climate, where uh, where we have been working very closely with uh, with your climate uh, envoy, uh, Dr. Chia Chenua, uh, who has been a good friend, but also a very active uh, player in developing. Uh, you know what we managed now only uh, a month and a half ago in Dubai, for instance. So we see the list of global challenges goes on, right, to ocean issues uh, uh, and to uh, you know air quality, environmental issues. How do you see China and Norway's efforts distinctively in dealing with these issues? For example, in electronic vehicles, I see these two countries are leading the way on the global landscape uh, in terms of the number of production and also the wide use of uh, EVs. Where do you see trends like these are leading us to in terms of cooperation? So, so on, when it comes to electric vehicles, uh, we are more on the consumption side. Uh, China is a major producer. We, uh, in Norway now, almost everybody who buys a new 
personal car, personal vehicle, mm -hmm. uh, buys an electric car. I think we're approaching 90% and we expect that uh, after next year there will be no fossil cars uh, in sale. I mean, you, you, I see. you have the old ones, of course, but uh, no new fossil cars. Are you also driving an EV yourself? Uh, well, actually, I'm now being driven in a government car. They have not turned electric yet, but we're working on it. But, I see. Uh, Interesting. Yes. But most people do. And, uh, and why? Well, because we gave uh, very, very good tax benefits, mm -hmm. but we also made it very easy to use because we have a charging infrastructure all across the country. We gave certain privileges, uh, you know, uh, that the toll roads had uh, lower prices for electric cars, for instance. So people started choosing electric cars. Now it's the norm new normal. And in that market, uh, key Chinese uh, car manufacturers are very present. So, so cars like BYD, like Xpeng, China has smartly been encountered some of these opportunities that emerge when the world decides to transition away from fossil fuels, then you have to transition into something that has to be uh, clean energy production, but also clean energy use. And, uh, and that's why this uh, EV, we have the highest penetration of EVs per capita anywhere in the planet. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting relation to China. And I also see that uh, when it comes to investments in, in, uh, in energy transition, in you know, clean energy, China is really doing a lot uh, in China itself, but also increasingly abroad. You know, there are some kinds of sentiments. Oh, China once again is dominating the market. Mm -hmm. Would there be danger in the future if we don't have access to this and that? On the other hand, there's also, you know, in my humble understanding, the so-called uh, strategic uh, competition between China and some other countries. Mm -hmm. And therefore, would this be used as a tool for geopolitics or geoeconomics? Uh, there's a lot of uh, different questions in consumers' head. Yeah. So as someone who is coming from a country, cares so much about the environment and also cooperation in the field, what is your take as a foreign minister? Well, you see, I think that we, we need to have uh, two thoughts in our head at the same time. One is that we need to accelerate the transition from fossil to renewable and from uh, linear uh, yes. waste culture to a more circular economic culture as fast as we can. And that in itself is an argument for extensive cooperation and for allowing those to do who does it best to, you know, to, to win the market. Mm. And the other thought is that I think it's also fair for all of us, for China, Norway, Europe, US, anyone, that we make sure that no country has you know, a monopoly of a technology or a, or a critical resource so that these technologies are shared and, and, and available in many countries and, and, and so on. But, but I think it's important, in Norway is a country that very much believes in an open trading system. We were very happy, really happy, when China joined the World Trade Organization, which I think is now 23 years ago which really opened up to a phase of uh, you know, unseen globalization where basically everybody could trade with everybody else. Mm -hmm. First in theory and then in practice because of the WTO. And now, as you correctly say, now we see markets closing in again. People are becoming more wary of where they buy their raw materials, their resources, their technology. So there is a, you know, there's a certain return to a more divided world, uh, which I think uh, we should be careful about. MC13, as you know, the Minister of Commerce, uh, uh, their co conference uh, every two years is coming yes. up later in February. Absolutely. Uh, there will be a lot of di discussions about that, I'm sure. 
And I will be there, I, uh, because this under, is under my purview in Norway. I know it will be the Minister of Commerce from here, but there is... What's on your mind? Well, many things, but, but, but I'll highlight two. One is there's a dispute settlement mechanism, um, which is actually one of the things that came in when what used to be a more Western organization called GATT became the WTO in 1995. And when it opened up to global membership, one of the things that came in then was the dispute settlement mechanism. Yeah, the appellate body. Exactly, appellate body. And here I think China and Norway agrees that we want to have that live and functioning, whereas uh, other countries have been holding back. So this will be a key uh, topic, uh, and, and I, I will see if we can be helpful to move that forward. Many economies of the small and medium size are watching this very closely. Very closely. Without that, uh, many trade cannot function, especially coming from those uh, middle-sized economies. Yes, even very large countries like China needs uh, well-functioning rules-based trade order, but if you're a smaller country like Norway or Singapore, for instance, this is really important because we basically we are not able to produce everything we consume ourselves. And the only path to sort of wealth is that we can produce and sell. So we need, need to have an open and transparent system. So that's going to be a very important topic at MC13. The other issue, Dubai, which is just an hour away from Abu Dhabi, we concluded the, the climate summit, COP28, with a very strong program of accelerating the transition away from fossil fuels by you know, really um, enhancing uh, uh, and strengthening all these investments in electrification and renewables, uh, all that we talked about. And we need to link that agenda also to the trade agenda because we, we need to have a climate agenda and a trade agenda that is connected. This is a good thing if we manage that, but it could also be a way to overcome some of the, uh, you know, some of the stalemates that we've have been having in WTO by introducing sort of a new approach. You know, leading up to MC13 and yeah. many other implementation of earlier agreements internationally, mm -hmm. what does it take for political leaders to be able to make their steps mm -hmm. and to make sure those steps will not be rather interrupted by political rhetorics yes. or echo chambers. I'm worried about political rhetorics and echo chambers and we see more and more on that, more polarization. In my part of the world this is now not so much Norway but you know around us we see a lot of that uh, coming and of course in the, the US uh, electoral debate we see this sort of coming in big time. So this is a challenge but I also experienced firsthand that when leaders are able to speak to each other but also listen to each other you know that i present my view but i respect to listen to another leader's view and then we see if we have a common ground and maybe maybe our views are not necessarily that far apart we just approach it from a different channel and maybe i can get half of what i want if she or he gets half of what she wants uh, so you know there are ways to deal with this in diplomacy and and on this um, on the issues of climate, environment, nature, biodiversity, ocean, as you mentioned. Yeah. This has been a set of issues where the world has progressed over the last years, despite of war in, the, war in Ukraine and you know, geopolitical conflict. Mm. But we have not seen the same progress on, uh, on issues of trade, for instance, or uh, you know, human rights promotion uh, on uh, peace and reconciliation. There are many other issues where we have not seen the same type of progress. Mm. So let's learn from these processes that works. I hope people will not forget what we have learned through decades. That's right. And, and I think one, one good thing to remember is that, the, for instance, the UN Charter, 
which was, uh, you know, was created just after the Second World War, or actually at the end of the Second World War, because negotiations began when the war was still ongoing. ER is a really important uh, constitution for the world, in a sense, and, and it was not made for sunny days alone. It was also made for really troubled times. And now that we are in troubled times, I think there's, an, you know, to go back to see what are the core principles that, you know, that you outlaw military aggression, for instance, that, you know, uh, 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 attacking and invading in other countries illegal. These things matter, and, and, and they matter particularly well now. And now, when we also have the Middle Eastern crisis, I have been very vocal in saying that we, we have to make sure that the standards apply equally that we don't allow you know, dual standards or different applications uh, to take hold because then people will not believe in the principles at all. I see Norway has been very ardent in supporting international organizations that are still there in Gaza trying to help people yes. to be able to have at least the food. Now I know Norway is doing this with also tremendous pressure from different parties. So tell me more about how do you see when China and Norway both believe that the UN Charter is the way to deal with some of the biggest challenges we're facing today, would be able to work on these hotspot issues? So, you know, Norway was very key and instrumental when, when the Oslo Accords came about, the original idea of a two-state solution, which is now 31 years ago in, in uh, 1993 between Israel and Palestine. And we started, we actually chaired the work that was set up to invest in and build the Palestinian institutions while they were negotiating some outstanding issues. That was the status of borders, it was the status of uh, Palestinian refugees, it was security, and what should happen to Jerusalem, whether it become a, a shared capital or, for instance, a dual capital. And, and the idea was to build these institutions bottom-up to be ready for the declaration of a state. That was a very good idea. It did not deliver yet. And the war in Gaza, in a sense, is one of the consequences why it didn't happen. But what I'm seeing now is that many countries around the planet, China, Norway, but also the US, Europe, many Arab states, are now again focusing that on a two-state solution as the only viable option. And actually here, Chinese and Norwegian perspectives are very similar. We want a ceasefire now. We want a rapid increase in humanitarian support now, but we also want this process towards a, a peaceful settlement, a, a two-state solution linked to a regional peace. And Arab, and I'm going to see Minister Wang Yi in a few hours, and, and we have both, both he and I independently met with a group of Arab ministers, colleagues of ours, who are now developing an, an Arab peace plan, or a proposed peace plan, which would connect normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and some other Arab states uh, with Israel to a two-state uh, solution process. And in this, Norway is active and will remain active. So many of the examples you just mentioned, Mr. Minister, it seems that it's only a common sense that we would be able to solve many of them. And yet, these coming of common sense or coming to consensus about common sense have become quite a challenge. Yes. From your years as a diplomat, you earlier mentioned about listening rather than just talking. Exactly. What kind of humble attitude does it require in order to have really effective listening? Well, I have to say I always enjoy meeting my Chinese uh, uh, counterparts, uh, listening to them, learning, but also standing firm on my thing. There are issues that we do not agree on, 
But I think the first thing then is to look for all the issues in where we actually agree or where we can come to an agreement, which, which very often happens. And then might, maybe we come to the same conclusion from two different starting points, but you know, through conversations we get there. But then also to be respectful of the fact that there will be things that we do not fully agree on. I think this ability to agree and disagree on different issues is a, is a quality of, of good diplomatic relations. Because, you know, total agreement on everything is not necessary to have a solid relationship. And then you should, you, you should stand firm on your principles, but you should also listen and understand others. Because your view and my view might both be based on sort of very good intentions, even if we don't start at exactly the same place. So this is an important thing. And I agree with you on the point of common sense. And just one example from diplomacy, Norway had a dispute first with the Soviet Union for 20 years and then with Russia for 20 years, which we solved, which was the, uh, how to delineate the economic zone between Norway and Russia. And, and so for altogether 40 years, uh, we discussed this and the uh, entire generation of Russian international lawyers and Norwegian international lawyers in their respective ministries were working on this. They were young, they get older, they retired and new people came. And then suddenly we solved it. And the solution was we divided the disputed area in two. But that took 40 years to get to that conclusion, but now we have it and we're really happy that this was settled, uh, you know, in better times in our relationship and it's now being respected by both countries. So sometimes uh, common sense uh, prevails. China and also Norway has been uh, working together on many fronts. You earlier mentioned about the biodiversity, climate uh, and uh, environment. Uh, the Arctic scientific research is a great example of that. Norway, you are in the area and you have been heading the organization regarding research and even some political issues related to the Arctic for quite some time. So how do you see once again now at this critical juncture, the potential of cooperation, both between China and Norway and also China and those in the Arctic Circle? Yes, exactly. So the, we have an organization called the Arctic Council yes. that consists of the eight countries that are actually in the Arctic. That's uh, Russia, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark because of Greenland, and then um, Canada. Canada and the US. So that's the Arctic countries. But then we, uh, we have a second category of observers to the Arctic Council because you have to be in the Arctic yes. to be a full member. And when I was foreign minister, uh, all, you know, many years ago, in my first stint, I was very active in promoting China uh, as one of the new observers to the Arctic Council. And, and we had, uh, there were differences of opinion, but we, we, we talked and we negotiated, we listened, as you said, and then there was an agreement to invite China together with a few other Asian countries in as an observer. And I, I was happy about that. And I've, I've, I'm seeing now that that has led to you know, further cooperation. There are uh, Chinese researchers present at uh, the Norwegian research station in the Ålesund, for instance. And uh, we very much not only understand, but we welcome an interest of China in, uh, for instance, Arctic climate research. Because in a, if you want to understand what's happening to the planet, you need to focus on the poles also. Uh, because because what's, what's the changes in what we call the cryosphere, which means the icy parts of the world, you know, the, the Himalaya or the North Pole or the South Pole, are very dramatic and they have global consequences. So it's important to understand them and, and hence we welcome a research cooperation with, uh, with China's uh, great uh, institutes on this. Ten years ago, uh, when um, 
let's just say, your counterpart who is uh, now in your position yes. came to China and talked about this, many people say, yes, of course, you know, just, of course, we're going to do that. But now things have changed, right? How do we make sure that we're not having this uh, wavering? The earlier determination will not be wavered by temporary apparent challenges. So our goal will be served eventually in this cooperation. Well, I mean, of course, the first answer is that wherever possible, we have to stick to the agreements we already made, even if things are changing. That is not always possible, but as much as possible. And when it comes to the Arctic in particular, and now that we have the chairship, as we call it, we took out the man, by the way, so it's chairship, not chairmanship. We have to admit that relations to Russia are more complicated because of the war in Ukraine, where we are on opposing sides. But relations to China have not deteriorated in, in the Arctic. It's just that the entire cooperation have been hampered by, you know, Russia-Western complexities. But, but we, you know, I just came out of a, one of the biggest Arctic conferences, which is a yearly conference in Tromsø, North Norway. And this is a place we'd like to see more Chinese presence as well, because it's a, it's a, it's a good place to exchange perspectives and views on, uh, on Arctic questions. The other thing is about the people-to-people exchanges. Yes. The cultural exchanges. I understand China and Norway have been clo- uh, working very closely during the uh, Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. And I know that the exchanges is still going on, mm-hmm. uh, knowing from our, your great ambassador to China. And I know there's tremendous curiosity mm-hmm. in China, uh, whether it's tourists or you know, folks uh, who want to know the outside world mm-hmm. about Norway. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, same thing from Norway toward China. Absolutely. We realized that uh, uh, the Chinese took an increasing interest in, in, uh, in cross-country skiing. Yes. So, so there were, then there was uh, you know, a lot of contacts with, because we, we are probably the leading country in the world in cross-country skiing, and we tend to win all the medals. And so now we've had a close cooperation on, uh, on, uh, on common training and so on on that. And we hope to enhance the number of you know, the mutual exchange of, uh, of students as well. And I think this is a really important part of uh, intercultural uh, dialogue that people can meet each other and, and live for a while in each other's cultures. And be able to have the conversations more than skin deep. Absolutely, yes. How does so that we work? We, of course, need more people to speak. Norway wants, needs more people to speak Chinese in our system or administration or businesses because the size of the Chinese economy just, you know, just makes sense that we need to be more present here. And, uh, and of course, uh, we also welcome more interest in learning Norwegian on the Chinese side. So many different people give descriptions about where we are in the world. You know, some say multipolar, which is usually the way the Chinese express it. Others say it is uh, a re-globalization, for example, quoting uh, uh, Madam uh, DG coming from WTO. There are different descriptions about this. What do you think is the nature of where we are now? It's an excellent question. I mean, I I can start by saying what we are not. I mean, we are definitely not in a unipolar moment. That was a short while after the Cold War. Uh, Nor are we in a duopolar or bipolar world. There there are too many actors, which would point towards uh, multipolar. But some people also say a non-polar world. That is, you know, it's not really... It's not really established yet, so I think the the safest thing to say is that we're in a transition uh, into something that we don't really know. But again, and here coming back to the opening points, there are certain things we agree upon, and and it's important. You know, we, we have 
ideological differences. We have a Chinese development model, a Western Chinese development model. Both of them want to deliver prosperity to the people, but through somewhat different paths. But we do agree that we cannot stop, we cannot continue to heat up the planet so it becomes unlivable. We also realize that the resources are not unlimited, so we have to use them more smartly. And we need to take better care of the environment around us. We cannot continue to pollute and heat up and take all oxygen to the ocean because eventually we'll all be dead regardless of ideology. So I think these things unites us, which is exactly why I believe that the reason that the, there has been more progress in these areas than on other areas is because, you know, smart uh, Chinese researchers and smart American researchers and smart Norwegian researchers tells the government exactly the same thing, that we have to change our, uh, our uh, not our growth, but our modality of growth into something where there is more quality. And, and this gives some hope because at least we agree on this. That's my exclusive interview with the Minister of Foreign Affairs from Norway. And that's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei. On behalf of the team, thanks for being with us. See you tomorrow.